Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. I'm Steve Shulwolf, a mediator of complex cases nationwide. For now, that means online, but when traveling resumes, I consider Chicago and Austin, Texas as my home base. Check out my website at shulwolfmediation.com to learn more and to access past episodes of Opening Doors to Resolution or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My last few episodes have focused on the impact COVID-19 has had on our legal system. We looked at it theoretically in Episode 7 when I talked with Professor Julia Simon-Kerr about how COVID creates an opportunity for our system to assess rules on credibility and mask witnesses in particular. In Episode 8, we stepped out into the real world to discuss with national trial attorney Matt Fisher why trial attorneys need to throw away their playbooks and adopt to the new realities of both in-person and virtual trials. But today we're shifting away from COVID-19, and as we do so, I want to avoid succumbing a little to pandemic fatigue. In prior episodes, I expressed my sincerest gratitude to all of you out there treating, researching, or mitigating the impact of COVID. And now more than ever, as numbers are climbing once again, and as everybody just wants this to be over and move on, I need to and want to reiterate those sentiments. So thank you. Okay. When I was in college and law school, the predominant thinking was that man behaved in economically logical manner. And he, and back then it was always he, if he did not act in his own best financial self-interest, it was likely due to distortions in the market like incomplete information. Well, now we know better, and we've got a greater appreciation for the fact that humans, frankly, are often pretty lousy decision makers. So today is episode nine, why humans are poor decision makers meet the cognitive bias. And the way people sometimes view decision-making obviously impacts then decisions that they make with respect to settlement negotiations and can impact my job as a mediator. So to delve into this topic, I needed a guest with experience in the law, with complex litigation, and psychology, and most importantly, somebody who was willing to come on my little podcast. So that seemed like an impossible ask, but magically, out of nowhere, we have Sherry Bellitz. So, Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Steve, thanks so much for having me. That was a fabulous introduction. I guess I really have the trifecta, and here I am, tuning in from New York. Well, absolutely. Now, Phil, we're going to need a good drum roll here for me to actually explain to people why, why Sherry fits that bill. Phil, you ready? Okay, so Sherry is the founder of Sherry Bellitz Communications, LLC, a litigation strategy and education company for lawyers. She's a lawyer with over 20 years of experience in the insurance industry, including managing mass tort litigation for Fortune 500 insured clients. 
She studied forensic psychology, including advanced jury research and science at the graduate level, and she writes and lectures extensively about the intersection of psychology and litigation and has taught about cognitive bias and negotiation at NYU's Shack Institute. Whew. Well, I think that's all the time we have t- for today. So uh, th- th- thank you, everybody. No, uh, seriously, thank you, Sherry, for, for, for coming on the podcast. You have quite the resume. And, and, and hopefully in the future, now you can add to it that you were the, the guest on Episode 9 of Opening Doors to Resolution. I look forward to adding that to my resume. I listened to your last couple podcasts and your guests were fabulous. So I am just so happy to be in such esteemed company. So thanks for having me and that wonderful introduction. All right. Well, absolutely. So I think we both have talked about trying to do a a little bit of an icebreaker. And, you know, it sounds like you've had some practical experience in my new neck of the woods down here in Texas. So I think you actually attended a mediation uh, down here or have some observations about the way Texans and New Yorkers approach mediation. I did, Steve. I had a very positive uh, experience in Texas. I was at a mediation in Dallas many years ago. And let me preface this on the heels of, I was working on a big case in New York, and this case had deposition after deposition, and we had a group of about 10 lawyers, and no one ever wanted to take lunch. These guys were like very intense. I one time asked about lunch. Someone pointed me to the vending machine to get some pretzels for lunch, and this was my intense New York litigation, a bit extreme. But anyway, on the heels of that, I went to Dallas for a mediation and we were mediating. It it was very pleasant. It was productive. But then at 11 o'clock, everything just stopped. All activity ceased. And I thought I was at a wedding or something because a buffet table was rolled in with, I mean, we were talking about chicken, fish, every side dish. It was like being at an event. So kind of quite the contrast to those pretzels in the vending machine in New York City. So I have a really, I I have a very positive view. I'm very bullish on Dallas. That was my one experience in Texas. Well, there you go. I I can tell you that that doesn't surprise me. And if you show up to any type of bar-related event, even in the morning, they've got the the breakfast tacos for everybody. So, And let, let's face it, food is an important part of negotiations and, and mediations. I think I joked with Matt Fisher in the last episode here, I think somebody is going to need to do a study with Zoom mediations and see whether the fact that people, their ability just to walk to their own fridge and satisfy, you know, their craving for hunger anytime they want. How does that impact, you know, mediation? I think, you know, Matt, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think somewhat seriously thought that fatigue, including a little bit of hanger sometimes, 
helps move the process along where if maybe people are able to eat whatever they want whenever they want they might be able to dig in uh, you know for the long haul so I, I don't know I mean some some psychologist I'm sure is going to present a study about the impact of that but you know I've joked a little bit as a as a mediator when you control the circumstances that I don't do this but I do think that there are mediators out there who control lunchtime and snacks when they feel it's a it's appropriate. <laughs> you know what? I don't disagree with you. And I will say in that New York litigation, I was probably taking the shortest depositions, just sustaining myself on those pretzels. So I don't disagree with you there. All right. Well, today's topic is cognitive biases. And obviously, we've already set the predicate that you know a little bit about this, both from a theoretical standpoint and, frankly, how it can impact litigation. So why don't you tell us, what are cognitive biases? Okay, sure. So cognitive biases are really just mental shortcuts. They are the brain being lazy and making a mental shortcut in order to get to a decision. And this is why when you preface this podcast with humans are poor at decision-making, that is really attributable to the cognitive bias. It is our way of making sense of a chaotic world by categorizing and organizing and often stereotyping concepts. So we do this every day in life. This happens across professions. It happens in medicine. And where I see it, because this is my area of expertise, is it happens in litigation. No, and it, I, I think it's, it, you know, it's fascinating because, well, well, first of all, once you delve into the, the subject material, you know, you learn about these heuristics, which I guess is a fancier way of, of saying shortcuts, but the idea that we as humans, and we don't even realize we're doing this, but we're inundated with data and make millions of decisions every day, most of them pretty innocuous type decisions, and if we broke down every decision process and slow down, as Daniel Kahneman asks us to do in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, the vast majority of our decisions would take too much time. So, you know, the real issue here is identifying the really important decisions that we're making in life and trying to, I think, be self-aware enough to realize whether we're making those decisions based on shortcuts that might not be accurate based on the facts available to us. Is, is, is that fair? That is correct. And in fact, I did a post on LinkedIn this morning. Like you, I'm very active on LinkedIn. And I've started doing a series of posts. So I'm doing a series on how to deal with dangerous documents in litigation. And today we dissected one of those dangerous documents. And when you looked at the document, I wanted to demonstrate how when you're thinking fast, when you're using those mental shortcuts, those heuristics, those cognitive biases, you look at the document, you make a bunch of assumptions, and those assumptions are your mental shortcuts, and it looks like a very bad document. But if you kind of move that over to the thinking slow, as Daniel Kahneman would say, and move that up to the cerebral cortex, that level of higher thinking, you can pull apart 
each of those assumptions and have an explanation for it. And when you're done with this, when you're finished with your thinking slow and pulling apart those thinking fast assumptions, what you will have is not a dangerous document. You'll have a very innocuous document, which you are going to be able to show to your witness or show to your jury or use in your litigation. So the thinking fast and slow is something across the board that we use in litigation and in litigation consulting. That's really interesting. And so before we kind of dive into specific cognitive biases, I think you've already touched on it, but you used to supervise litigation. I think before that were a litigator yourself. So now you're in the consulting world. And so use this as an opportunity to to tell me why, frankly, more attorneys and clients out there should authorize the use of consultants like you on their cases. Well, I think that, and I should say I am, and here's my bias, is I'm from the defense world. I was a defense attorney. That was my first professional job other than clerking. Then I was at an insurance company where I managed litigation and that was defense side. And I work with defense attorneys now. But what has happened in the last 10 years is the plaintiff's bar has gotten very strong. They are sharing their playbooks. They are sharing their strategies and they have embraced social psychology and their embracing social psychology. We saw it in 2009 with the reptile theory. We see it with anchoring. We see it with what they are doing. They have been able to harness it, frankly, and drive up verdicts. So it is always my call to action to the defense bar. Take social psychology, not only for jury selection or when you're about to start a trial, but take it and use it from the beginning of your case evaluation and your case analysis. Use it to prepare your witnesses. Use it to dissect your documents. Use it to come up with your themes, to come up with your stories, to come up with your strategies, because social science is very applicable to litigation, and it will help you mitigate and manage your risks. I think that's right. And we saw with the reptile theory, I think it's taken the defense bar some time to respond to that. You know, I think you and I are on the same page, but for some people out there who aren't familiar with uh, the reptile theory, if you could kind of give us a little nutshell summary of that. Sure. So the reptile theory, it started in about 2009. There was a book written by a trial consultant and a plaintiff's attorney, and it was called the Reptile Manual or the Plaintiff's Guide to the Reptile Theory or something like that. And the whole premise of this book was if you can get to, it it was a call to action to the plaintiff's bar. If you can get to that reptilian primitive portion of the brain, that amygdala, that limbic system of the brain of the jurors, you will be able to drive up verdicts. So whether the science to that is correct or incorrect, and there have been folks in the social psychology world who have debunked that or who have tried to mitigate it, the fact of the matter is 
they took this and they broke it into three elements. I like to look at the reptile theory as three elements and they broke it into element one, the defendant has violated a safety rule. Element two, the defendant's violation of that safety rule has put the community in danger. You, the jurors, are part of that community. And element three, it is up to you, the jurors, to send a message, send a message to that defendant, send a message to every prospective defendant, potential defendant, that you cannot put my community in danger without paying monetarily. So get out your checkbooks. So that's the reptile theory broken into elements. And it was really the old way of presenting a case from the plaintiff's side was to arouse sympathy to the plaintiff, all eyes on the plaintiff. Now, plaintiff's lawyers have really harnessed social psychology, like I was saying, and they realize sympathy is not the way to do it. Sympathy is not a great motivator. The greatest motivator is anger. Let's arouse anger. All eyes on the defendant now. We are not looking at the plaintiff's conduct. We are not feeling sorry for the plaintiff. We are getting angry at that defendant, that careless trucking company, that pharmaceutical company that made those dangerous products that cause cancer. We are looking to arouse anger. So that's the reptile theory in a nutshell. And verdicts have gone on an upward trajectory since the reptile theory manual was published. No, it's it's fascinating because when I started out in litigation, I think you're right. The prevailing tactic for plaintiffs was to try to elicit sympathy for uh, their clients. And obviously, in certain circumstances, that can be effective day in the life. Videos are, are, are common when there's been certain injuries that the jury should feel sorry for. But I always feel that, that that cuts both ways, too. I mean, I think that can also tap into anger. And there's definitely been, you know, originally, I think the reptile theory was a little bit shrouded in secrecy, right? It was only it was closely held among certain plaintiffs' lawyers. And I think now the cat literally is out of the bag. And so now I think you see defense attorneys who are attending seminars on it, and you, you see both sides of the bar on that. But for a while, it was a little bit more of a closely guarded secret, no? I think you're right. But with the publication of the book, which if you go on Amazon, you can see the book. The book is very expensive. I think a lot of people have seen merit in this. And also, let's not forget, plaintiffs have every incentive, plaintiffs' attorneys have every incentive to share information with each other. They work on a collaborative business model. They are not working on a repeat business model. I mean, you would hope they wouldn't. You would hope someone doesn't keep getting catastrophically injured and going back to their lawyer. So they have every incentive to share resources, to share strategies. Maybe they have someone who works up the case and then another firm tries the case. Maybe someone tries the cases in New York and someone's better at trying the cases down south. Whereas the defense bar works on a competitive model. They're competing for that same insurance company business. 
there is not the same incentive to share information. So that's kind of a systemic issue when we talk about what's driving up verdicts. Well, and you've talked a little bit about your role. You talked about your your LinkedIn post today where you're providing some suggestions about how you can unpack and how you address dealing with a bad document. So that's your role in terms of taking a look at how you can use psychology to assist your clients in presenting a case that's going to persuade a jury or a judge to their side. You know, as a mediator, I'm neutral. So I want to stress, I think, ironically, I had a, a LinkedIn post about this myself, is that You know, I'm fascinated with some of these biases that we're going to talk about because I think as a mediator, you need to be because you need to understand where some of the common mistakes that very intelligent lawyers and their clients make when they're valuing complex cases. And if their decision making is impacted by any of these biases, that could impact whether you're able to help the parties reach a mutually acceptable deal. But I want to preface this by saying that as a mediator, it's not my job to pick the number that the parties should agree to. And when I'm talking, whether it's with you or you know anybody else about particular biases, it's not because I'm trying to correct people and tell them that they're just wrong. But what I do point out is that we all face litigation risks, and we all face risks that our framework for quantifying the value of a case might be based on assumptions that at least should be reconsidered. And so when I talk, you know, we joke a little bit about humans being lousy decision makers, but you know, my job at a mediation isn't necessarily to correct a student like a teacher would, but I do think that there is a role for a mediator who has understanding of psychology and some of these biases to be able to ask questions in a way and to frame them in a way that at least forces parties to slow down think things through a little bit, and maybe ascertain whether they're correctly valuing the case. So I just thought I needed to throw that out there, that our roles, you know, while we're, we're interested in, this, in similar things, our roles are, are a little bit different, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm going into mediations with these judgments that because of biases, people are wrong. My job is just to try to help them think things through. I think that's a fair statement, and I think it's an excellent analysis because what you're doing is, and it's it's really sort of like psychology in the therapeutic sense, is you're making the parties kind of come to conclusions on their own, slowing down the thinking and kind of getting rid of those knee-jerk, heuristic, thinking fast reactions and really engaging in a more deliberative process of thinking. So I I think that's a fair statement and an important role for a mediator. So there's a couple of biases that we're going to talk about in particular, but you had said that you had listened to uh, a couple of uh, the episodes. And for those of you out there, and if you have listened to all of the episodes, thank you. So I have actually, by putting a label on it as a cognitive bias, 
I have, throughout some of my episodes, played particular games that are meant to demonstrate some of the things that we're going to talk about today. So in earlier episodes, I played a version of the Monty Hall game, and in my last podcast with Matt Fisher, I somewhat suspected that he would have had prepared for that, and he confessed that that he had, and I played a, a different game with him. So now I think you listened to the last episode, correct? I did. Okay, so I am not going to play the Fisher flu game, which for those of you <laughs> who haven't listened, the Fisher flu game at bottom talked about base rate fallacy. And it's a game in which demonstrates that if people are presented with specific information to them and then a general baseline, they generally focus on the specific information. And so my suggestion to him with respect to litigation is oftentimes as a mediator, I might hear a party say, look, I understand that this is a hard jurisdiction to win on issue X, but we have really good facts, but we're being reasonable and we're recognizing that because of the jurisdiction, it's only, we're only asking for a 50% discount. And the point that I was making for base rate fallacy is even though that sounds logical, it sounds like, you know, the person making it fully believes that they're being reasonable. But the reality is it's much more important to know that, say, only one out of every thousand summary judgment motions on that issue have been granted than how good their case is. Because they're already going uphill so much that they tend to still be overvaluing the case. And so while I dress these things up as games, they're talking about different ways that we as humans process information and we could be biased. But because I love these things, I've got another one for you. So are you ready, Sherry, to play a new game? I'm not sure, but I'm here, so let's try it. All right. Well, you know what? The only thing I can say about that is that was the most honest answer I've ever gotten from anybody. uh. (laughs) So, all right. This one involves Mr. Smith, okay? Mr. Smith has two children. At least one of them is a boy. Sherry, what is the probability that both children are boys? Let's see. You want me to say 50%, right? Well, I know that you, more than most, might think through what it is that I'm trying to demonstrate, but you can answer whatever you want. (laughs) Okay, so Mr. Smith has two kids. One is a boy. What is the probability that both children are boys? I'm going to say it's higher than 50% because we know that one is a boy. That's a known. All right. And I, I think you're on to this. So just so you know... The vast, vast majority of people, in fact, one study I think was 96% of graduate business students who had to take probability classes say 50-50. And our mind tends to focus on the two outcomes. It's either a boy or a girl. And, you know, if we wanted to get real technically, we could have said, look, assume that there's a 50-50 chance on kids, you know, I think slightly more girls you know, might be born, but that's that's not what this is trying to play to. But what it does play to is if we think about it this way, there's four outcomes that are possible if somebody has two children, boy-boy, boy-girl, girl-boy, and girl-girl, okay? So we know 
that one of them is a boy. So we know the girl-girl scenario isn't out there. So we have three scenarios, boy-boy, boy-girl, and girl-boy. In the last two, the other, if we know that one of the children is already a boy, in both the last two scenarios, the other child is a girl. So the answer is 66.7% chance that the other child is a girl. You know what? It's very funny you gave this example, and it's actually funnier that I didn't right away know the exact answer because, so for those of you who don't know me, I have boy-girl twins. (laughs) And when I was pregnant with the twins, we didn't know. We didn't know whether they were boys or whether they were girls. I wanted to be surprised. And I wrote down a chart, like kind of, it looks like a Punit square, sort of like just like four quadrants. And I wrote down the possibilities and it was boy, boy, girl, girl, boy, girl, and girl, boy. So there was a 50% chance of having that boy, girl combination, only 25, the boy, boy, and only 25, the girl, girl. So it's very funny because about 10 years ago, I was running these permutations in my head. So it's it's kind of funny to use that example. Well, there, yeah. And, 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 and the point is the equal probability bias, you know, is, is real in that instead of slowing down and listing the four potential outcomes, looking at the rules of the game and how it impacts things, people take the heuristic, the shortcut to, well, it's 50-50, right? I mean, every child is is different. The other thing that this does, like the Monty Hall game, is on a, every child, it's 50-50. But under the rules of the game, knowing that there was two children, knowing that one was a boy, that changes. And some people don't process that information. The reason that it's 67% for this particular child is because we know that Mr. Smith has two children. We know that one of them is a boy. If you just said, Steve has one child, is it a boy or a girl? Well, then that's a 50-50 guess, but it's the rules. And so what I get fascinated with all of these biases and my role as a mediator is what can I do to make sure that people understand the rules of the game. So litigation has their own rules. How did that particular motion that was decided two months ago, how does that impact your valuation of the case? And are you really, even though you think as an attorney that you're processing it correctly in your valuation, I use things like this to at least make people question because there's plenty of of these type of examples of games in which the average person just gets it wrong, including very intelligent folks like lawyers. And so that's the reason, without explaining it on every episode, I do things like the Monty Hall game and the Fisher Flu game, is just to throw these things out there so that people could take a step back and and think, sometimes am I missing the rules? Am I not fully internalizing all the information that's available to me? I mean, I think that is a really innovative approach to get people to open up their minds and to really become aware because awareness is always the first step in negating a cognitive bias. You have to be aware that it exists. So I think that's a great method. All right. Well, so let's talk about some of the 
other biases other than the equal probability biases. I think you wanted to talk a little bit about the availability bias. Why don't you tell us what that is? Sure. I love the availability bias. I think it is so fascinating. It's actually, I know we said we weren't going to talk about COVID, but it is very relevant to what's going on with COVID. The availability bias is when we are dependent on information that comes to mind quickly and information that can be easily recalled and information that's quite frankly, a little bit shocking. That's the availability bias. And there's always an example. I've been using this example for about a year when I talk about the availability bias because I think nothing demonstrates it better is last year and how things have changed. Last summer, the biggest story in the news in New York City was a terrible tragedy that happened in an elevator where there was a young man, he was in his apartment building, he was in a packed elevator, and the elevator started bouncing, and he took a step out of the elevator as the door started opening, and he stepped into that threshold. He fell down the shaft of the elevator and was basically crushed to death. This was last summer, um, last August, I believe. So anyway, this is, again, how things have changed pre-COVID. This is all you were seeing on the New York News. This was on the cover of the Post. This was on New York One. You could not turn on any local channel and not see this story. And New Yorkers were being interviewed and people were terrified. They were terrified. There was one woman who she was pregnant and she had walked down 20 flights of stairs to avoid her elevator. And I'm not saying it didn't affect me. I stopped holding my elevator open with my arm, which I frequently do just to kind of hold it open. People were terrified of their elevators. So here's where the availability bias comes in. What was the real danger in New York City last summer? It certainly wasn't an elevator. Oh, it is, is, wait, is that a question? I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical, it's oh, kind of okay. a rhetorical, but go ahead and answer the question. Was the elevator your real danger well, in New York City in 2019? I mean, as a as a free, well, I would say frequent visitor. I haven't been in a while for obvious reasons. My dad left New York in 1955, and he's still a New Yorker. But I'm going to say that the biggest risk that you have in New York City is walking the street and getting clipped by a taxi. Taxi! 100%. Your biggest risk in New York City. Until right. COVID, at least. Phil, you're going to have to give me some you know, good music uh, on, on that one. All right. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So until, until COVID, where no one was leaving their apartment, your biggest risk was stepping out into the street, most likely with a smartphone and distracted by that smartphone in your hand, and getting hit by a car or a cab or an Uber or a bicycle because the streets are so densely populated. But you didn't hear people on the news saying, you know what, I, I'm not going to leave my apartment. I'm afraid of getting hit by a cab. But you heard all of these people so fearful 
about the elevator. And this is a perfect demonstration of the availability bias. It was, it just happened. It was shocking. It was all over the news. It was, it was frequent and people were afraid. And it's really the same thing with any great catastrophe like fear of flying after 9-11. Fear of flying after 9-11 actually led to more car accidents. So you can see how this mental shortcut, this heuristic can actually play out quite dangerously in life. So how do you deal with that with clients? Is there a way that, you know, are there times where you're talking with an attorney and maybe the attorney is is focused on that last trial that he had and every strategy suggestion is is based on the most recent example or 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 maybe that's not something but i'm just trying to tie it in a little bit to what your uh, consulting services are okay sure so this is what i would do and let's take that elevator case as an example and i do know that suit was filed i don't know what happened i don't know if it was resolved i don't know if it's in discovery i really don't know what happened with that procedural wise. But what I would do if I was the plaintiff's attorney, and again, I mostly advise defendants, but if I was the plaintiff's attorney, what you have is a reptile on your hands. You have a danger to the community argument and you need to exploit that and build a theme around sending a message to management companies or whoever was sued in this case, sending a message to elevator companies. They cannot put the community in danger. And if they do, they will pay. And this is the perfect reptile theory case because you have a community who is so concerned that there but for the grace of God, this could have been their elevator. New Yorkers are dependent on elevators. So if you're the plaintiff, you're going to want to take that availability bias and run with it, exploit it. If you are the defense, you are going to have to mitigate that availability bias. You're going to have to take that and make an isolated incident argument, take things back to the cerebral cortex, take it back to the slow thinking, deliberative reasoning, take responsibility, not admit liability, take responsibility, diffuse the anger, show statistics, make people think slow, just like you did with the boy-girl, the boy-girl base rate fallacy. Use your experts, use graphics. That is how you are going to slow down the thinking process of your jury. And of course, I say of your jury and at trial, but really, Cases are one in the office. They're not one in the courtroom. So this goes back to preparation during discovery. Well, yeah. So, you know, I had this mental image when you're talking about how New Yorkers are are so reliant on elevators. So if you were consulting for the defense, would you be happy or a little bit nervous if every day the jurors had to go to a courtroom on like the 20th floor and take an elevator. I mean, was that a good thing because they survived every day or is it a bad thing because every day that they walk into that elevator, they're a little bit nervous? 
Well, you know what? That's a really interesting question. And I never thought about that when I was thinking about the elevator case. And in New York Supreme and in most of the other boroughs of New York, you do have to take an elevator to these multi-level courthouses. It's been a long time, but I, I, I had some cases out there. You do. You do. And I actually, I have to say, I actually like the elevators in the courthouse. They're very large elevators, so it's not like your creepy little elevators. So that's an interesting question because really the more you do something and they do this with people who are psychologists do this with people who are afraid of flying. It's called habituation. Like when there are people terrified of flying, like first they'll go to the airport and sit in the airport. Then you go look at the plane and you go sit in the plane and you really become habituated. So I think there's some interesting issues to bring out on voir dire certainly. And I think they'd kind of maybe laugh ironically that here they are, all the jurors packed into an elevator while they're hearing a case about an elevator. So that's something interesting to think about. I'll have to think about it. I think you would probably, by the time you have your jury seated, make sure to deselect anyone that is a terrible juror in voir dire. Oh, sure. I asked that question without having any personal bias as to one way or the other, what was the right answer, but I, I think it is pretty interesting. You know, one of the things, you know, as somebody like myself that, are, you know, is trying to learn more about all of this, one of the things that I think can be a little bit frustrating is, you know, if you pick up a book on some cognitive biases, you know, we're going to touch on the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, there there must be 30 different biases that have been at least proposed or or studied. And so I guess the one thing that I'm interested as in, somebody who has, you know, much more expertise than myself on this is how they kind of interrelate. Because I think you can come up with fact patterns where there might be biases that are tugging in different directions and trying to determine in any particular case, you know, what's going to predominate, I think is fascinating. I think that is a great point. And sometimes actually when I've been lecturing about several of the more prevalent biases in litigation and I'm talking about one of them, I actually start thinking about how another one relates to that. And they do overlap and they do relate. Like there's a lot of commonalities and there's a lot of overlap with confirmation bias and exposure bias, for example. And I was talking at NYU about confirmation bias. And I was realizing, wow, I think I'm talking a little bit about exposure bias as well. So let me just kind of give that a mention. So there's absolutely overlap. I was reading the other day a book that was a little bit more towards some of the issues that I deal with. The, the book was providing some guidance on valuing commercial cases, complex cases. And at the beginning of it, talked about cognitive biases. But the point of the book was saying that the vast majority, according to studies, the vast majority of cases that go to trial should have settled. And the the way that they viewed it is that they said that they looked into data, and obviously this is hard to do because this is all confidential, but they did a study in which they said like 95% of cases, the 
party who did not prevail turned down you know, an offer that was better than the trial result. And my first thought was the book otherwise was talking about biases. And one of the biases is an outcome bias, right? You can make a bad right. decision. Like I can hit 16 in blackjack, the dealer has a five. That's an incredibly poor decision. But if I pull a five, my thought process might be, I'm brilliant, right? So I was kind of thinking, well, isn't the whole study that ironically is talking about the importance of biases maybe impacted by the fact that people could have had an absolute legitimate reason to turn down that settlement offer. It just didn't go their way that day. And that's one of the things mediators, we tell people all all the time, right? Is that you might have the greatest case. It doesn't mean you're going to win your trial. It might mean your attorney wins it nine times out of a 10, but you just have the risk that you're still that the outlier. And so I don't know. I, I think this, we've used the term when we've talked together off air of nerding out. And I think this was an example of me just overthinking and nerding out the whole premise of this study that was supposed to support why people made bad decision-making, and I was wondering whether it was distorted because it wasn't analyzing the data correctly. So that just shows you sometimes your mind can just race in different directions when you, you, you really take a deep dive into this. Look, nerding out is like my favorite thing to do, and I've been doing a whole lot of it during these quarantine times, but outcome bias, and I love that you use blackjack as an example. I, lo I love cards. I love blackjack. I love poker. And in fact, Annie Duke wrote a really great book about decision-making, and it is so smart about cognitive biases and just her poker strategies. But outcome bias is such a dangerous thing in litigation. And it's really, there's kind of an overlap with confirmation bias, I would say. And your example where you hit that 16 against the five, like you shouldn't be hitting a 16 against the bus card, right? If it's a king, that's another story. Then you hit that 16. But um, so for rookie blackjack players, they're going to see, you know what, you hit that 16 against the bus card and you manage to do well and like hit a 21 or hit a 20 or something total, they're going to see that and they're going to see, look, the outcome worked out okay. Like we're good. I'm going to incorporate this into my strategy and the opposite way. If they did the right thing, according to the blackjack rules and lost, that also may be incorporated into their strategy. So it's very interesting in litigation because outcome bias, there are so many variables at stake. Like, for example, you can have, I know someone who uses a certain expert for his fusion cases, and he says, you know what, this guy, we win all these cases, we get great results with this expert. Well, you know what? Maybe it's not the expert. Maybe in one case it was the judge. Maybe in one case it was one of the witnesses. Maybe in one case it was one of the jurors. Like you don't really know. So, so that's dangerous to um, say, look, we're getting a good outcome because of this person. It would be very different if you engaged in that deliberative process and said, you know what? John's a really good expert for this because he's speaks well to a jury and he simplifies things and he can make these complicated medical records easy. That's the deliberative process. The knee-jerk cognitive bias process is, hey, look, we're getting a great result in every case this guy testified in. Now, all right. Now, wait. Before we continue to nerd out, I want to take a time out and ask you an important question because I had a sense 
that you were a card player. Just had a sense that that you would understand the blackjack example. But so so here's the thing. My wife, not a great card player. So we went one time to Vegas. My parents, you know, like Vegas. So my dad, myself, and my wife were sitting at the blackjack table. And I don't know whether it was exactly as bad as what I just said, but let's say she hit the five with the dealer also showing a five. Now, are you the person, if you're sitting right next to that person, get all upset because she's taking a card from the deck that, if she was a good player, should still be in the deck? Or do you just not care? Oh, me personally? Well, I don't sit at the really high stakes tables and I really don't gamble a lot. Oh, I just and, and th- it- th- this was not a high stakes table. So yeah, I no, I, I sit at the I sit at the cheap table. So I, you know, I'm not losing a lot of money if someone takes a card. But again, let's take the outcome bias one step further. So what if she takes a card that should have been mine and she does well, so she thinks she's great. She thinks she does the right thing just because she got a good outcome. And then let's say that gives me a great card, which I should never have gotten because I should have gotten her card and I have a great outcome. So the outcome bias kind of perpetuates. But again, personally, I'm like such a low stakes player and have done it like hardly at all in the last several years and probably will not be going to a casino and for a very long time, yeah, yeah, but um, sure. no. So, so, so I don't get angry because I realize that it could go either way. It could net me a better card. Yeah. So. See, so my dad for better or worse, and I have some friends who are like this as well, they'll get up and walk away from a table if they think that somebody is somehow cheating the gods. And, and so I have the conversation, I'm like, yes, Dad, Beth is a terrible blackjack player, but like you, you like you were just saying, you, you, you don't necessarily know how that works out. But although I've I've heard the argument, and I have not, you know, we're talking about heuristics. I haven't sat down and thought slow about this, but you know, the the argument is is that if you're on a draw, you want a lower card. So if she shouldn't have drawn a card anyway and took a lower card, the fact that there might have been two helpful cards in a row doesn't alleviate the fact that she stole my card. So that's what people think. So, but it, it, I think it goes to, you know, that example, like my Monty Hall game example shows that there is a connection between probability and emotion in decision-making. And so, you know, to summarize the Monty Hall game really quickly, I've had this on the episode. You can go to my website, play the game under resolution roulette at showwolfmediation.com. But the point is you're given three doors. There's two goats, one car. Monty asks you to pick a uh, door. You pick the door. He's going to show you a goat behind one of the other doors. He's going to ask you whether you want to switch or not. And most people stay. There's been study after study, cultures, it just doesn't matter, about roughly over 90% of people stay. And the amusing thing about that is that shows you, one, that people are bad at math, because kind of like the boy-girl example we gave before, mathematically, you, you double your chances of winning if you switch. People don't think that, but they think, because of the equal probability bias, that it's 50-50. And that's fine. If you think it's 50-50, then from a psychological perspective, why don't we see half of the people switching? There are other biases here. There's an intersection between just 
our failure to fully process information from a probabilistic standpoint, but it's also because there's other biases. And so with the Monty Hall game, it's the equal probability bias. You're, you convince yourself that there's two doors remaining and it's a 50-50 shot. There's something called the status quo bias. And so there's been studies. People are simply more upset if they take an affirmative action to get to the same lousy result than if they just passively allow that to occur. So I, I read a study. I don't know whether this is Kahneman. I, I, I think it's a different study. But where people have $10 in stock A, and they're thinking about selling all their stock in you know company A and buying company B. And there's two scenarios. One in which they sell the stock, buy company B, and then company B goes bankrupt the next day, so they lose their $10. Or they sat on their couch, they forgot to sell company A, company A goes bankrupt, and they lose $10. So faced with identical scenarios where the company that they were invested with went bankrupt and they're out all their money, people pretty much overwhelmingly feel worse about the situation in which they affirmatively took action and sold the stock. And so some psychologists say that that happens a little bit in the Monty Hall game, is that you don't want to switch you're going to just stay, let things play play out. Other people say it's the endowment effect. And this one was a Kahneman study where he gave people mugs that were valued at like $6 from a local bookstore. People knew that. And they were asked to sell the mugs to a third party. And so the thought process would be that they would sell it for about $3, you know, half half of what they w- was worth. But the endowment effect says people overvalue something once they get it. So in the Monty Hall game, once you choose your door, that's your door. You had the opportunity to choose the other door. You didn't. So now you're overvaluing its worth. But all of these, that was a shortcut way of talking about a couple of different biases to explain why it is on something so simple like the Monty Hall game, most people don't switch. And it's not because they think that's better for them mathematically. They think it doesn't matter, but then there's psychological reasons that impact their decision-making. Absolutely. And like you said, there are a couple of biases tied in with that. And that kind of no risk is a risk analysis. And you have confirmation biases tied in with that, like that falling in love with your side, my side bias. And you also have kind of an escalation of commitment bias, sort of like if you would spend I don't even know how much a movie is now, but if you would spend $20 to go to a movie and you're sitting through this terrible movie and you're just determined to sit it out because you spent the money. So kind of that sunk cost fallacy. So a little bit of each of those is tied in to what you're saying with the Monty Hall game. Sure. And then, you know, it shows you, you can convince yourself of anything. See, I sit through the movie and I convince myself it's not because I'm cheap and have the sunk cost, you know, bias. It's because I'm an optimist and I think maybe the ending will be better than the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I do that with books. Guilty as charged. I do that with books. I make myself finish a book. Why? Who cares? I, I already paid for it. I already lost the money to Amazon or to Barnes and Nobles or to wherever. Why am I forcing myself to finish this terrible book? See, now that's funny. See, for me, 
you know, and just thinking this through, as you were saying that, I'm not that way with books. And for me, I think it's more of the time investment. So if I'm through a book and I just don't think it's well-written, I don't like the plot, I'm not learning from it, at some point, I'll cut bait from it. But I have never walked out of a movie theater. Interesting. And there may be some biases with that, or it could go back to a childhood thing. And there's just kind of like a myriad of factors. So very interesting to study. Oh, boy. So I I guess what we've learned here is the name of this episode was why humans are poor decision makers. And apparently Sherry has pointed out that my attitude towards books and movies has been flawed my entire life. So, you know, at some point I'm going to lay down on a couch and somebody's going to tell me why I I haven't been able to ever finish Moby Dick. You are terribly inconsistent, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, look, I think we're getting towards the end of the podcast. One thing, you know, ironically, I think you had mentioned it up front as a tactic used and a prevalent bias, and that was the anchoring bias. So I just want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about what the anchoring bias is and how it impacts litigation and what you do. Okay, sure. And I know mediators are very, very familiar with the anchoring bias, and it's probably one of the cognitive biases most near and dear. But litigators, listen up, because I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't know about it after I tell you sort of the conventional wisdom. So as most of us know, the anchoring bias is when people tend to rely heavily on one specific trait or piece of information, and they drive their conclusions based upon that information. And where we see it and why mediators know so much about it is because it has to do with money and pricing, negotiating, settling a case, because once an anchor is set, all future negotiations kind of just stem from that anchor. So you could have two identical cases, one with a $20 million demand, one with a $10 million demand. Let's just say these are identical cases, same jurisdiction, same judge, same everything. And studies have shown that that $20 million demand is going to net the higher ultimate settlement. And it works in verdicts as well. And um, one of my friends, who's a defense attorney, Bob Tyson, he wrote a book called Nuclear Verdicts, very great book. He has a whole section on anchoring. And there's a part about how do plaintiffs get large verdicts? How do you get large verdicts? You ask for it. And that is anchoring. And that is harnessing anchoring. But now what I'm going to tell you, because we always think about anchoring in terms of negotiations. So here's something a little different I'm going to tell you to um, all the litigators listening out there is anchoring can also be used with case themes. It's not only about money and negotiations and pricing. You can anchor with a case theme. So if you can come up with a case theme that is more compelling, more persuasive than your adversary, every bit of evidence, every bit of testimony, everything is going to be filtered through that anchor. It's going to be filtered through that lens. So for an example, and this is kind of, I'm giving like some information to defense attorneys here, that's who I usually talk to, is If plaintiff comes up with a theme, because remember, they have the advantage, they are going first, so they are setting an anchor, whether it's a monetary anchor or whether it's a case theme anchor, and if plaintiff gets up there and gives a 
let's just say profits over people argument and just this is a case about profits over people, profits over people, profits over people. What the defense does not want to do strategically is that they do not want to negate that anchor where they are using the same language. They don't want to say this isn't a case about profits over people. They do not want to give credence to it. They want to come up with their own original compelling anchor. So something like, this is a case about personal responsibility. This is a case about making good choices. They need to set their own anchor. And the winning compelling anchor is going to reap the benefit, especially if those jurors are taking notes and taking them back to the deliberation room. Everything's going to get filtered through that. So that is, we see it in advertising, we see it in politics, and we see it in the courtroom. That's fascinating. I, you know, I think maybe unconsciously, this might be one where I was doing something correct because I used to joke in litigating that the biggest cases that I had, you know, the highest dollar cases, you know, litigating against the larger firms, I felt that those cases typically were what I called ships passing in the night cases. That, you know, they had their theme, I had my theme, and, you know, like you said, I didn't necessarily, as a defense attorney, feel that it was in my client's interest to take their theory apart tit for tat. It was, here's a different view of the world, and and hopefully it's the more persuasive one. So that that, that that's interesting, because I, I don't think I was doing that at least consciously as an effort to avoid an anchoring bias, because like you said... For mediators, anchoring is all about the parties being fixated on what the opening demand was and, frankly, at every stage, calculating, well, if we make this offer, what's the midpoint? And, you know, sometimes that's an effective way to deal with it. But sometimes, as the mediator, you have to just say, look, I am prepared to go in the other room and say, they're making this offer because they think this offer is what makes sense at this time. And they're not trying to tell you which way this case is going to go by some type of analysis of midpoints. But we all know that people do that, you know, all the time. They do. They do. And there are ways to defeat anchoring in negotiations and anchoring when we're talking about money. And usually the most effective way to do that is to slow down that thinking process to refute the anchor. Don't refute it by countering because that's implicit accepting the anchor. You're implicitly accepting the anchor if you say, no, not not $20 million. How about $10 million? You need to kind of get the time and space away from that, refute it with data, make your own case with data and set your own anchor. Well, and, and, you know, that is one thing. In complex cases, it's not too difficult, but sometimes you run into this. You know, as a mediator, one of the most important things is making sure everybody prepares. And I think attorneys, when they hear that, they feel that that means, okay, the mediator wants a, a submission and, and we're going to give her the submission. And, th- and that that's great. But preparation also involves 
talking to your client, walking them through what you think may happen, and having them psychologically prepared that their $10 million demand is likely to be met with something that they're not going to like, or vice versa, that the defendant's not going to necessarily like the opening offer, and how do they avoid anchoring? You know, we, we've talked a little bit about anchoring in, in settlements. I think I had a LinkedIn post on this, so I'm going to I'm going to tweak a buddy of mine. But so for those of you who are still not 100% sure what anchoring is, when I was in you know, my 20s, I had a good friend and, and roommate, and we both loved to travel, but we hadn't done a lot of it yet because we just were early in our careers. And so I think he took one of his first big trips, and so he went to Istanbul. And if anybody has gone to Istanbul, for those of you who know me, I taught for a couple of years in in Bulgaria. And so that was the country next door. So I I had the opportunity to go to Istanbul 20, 30 years after uh, my buddy did. And you show up in these markets and there's 30 people that come to you and they, they all are offering you things. And it's all, they're famous for the bazaars there for negotiation. So my buddy came back with, and it was a very nice rug, but he was, it was clear it was the first, I forgot how much it cost. I think now it wouldn't be that much, but back then it seemed outrageous, right? I think it was maybe like $800. And, you know, he got it framed and it was on the wall. But when anybody asked him about it, I mean, he was so impressed with himself because I think when he walked in, they quoted him $5,000. And that's what happens. They anchor you to 5,000. And we're talking 30 years later, my buddy, God bless him, still thinks he got a great deal because he shaved $4,200 off of that rug. And to me, that's my best example of anchoring. But as I said in my LinkedIn post about it, as a mediator, it doesn't matter whether I think the carpet was worth $800 or not. He's had it on his wall now for 30 years. He's happy with it. So that was a good deal for him. I do think, though, in the negotiation process, he, he was subject to some anchoring. He definitely was subject to anchoring as we are every day, whether it's, you know, buying a car, a house, really, it's probably one of the most prevalent biases in everyday life, anchoring. So, all right. Well, Sherry, if uh, people are listening here and they want to learn more about you and the services you provide, uh, where can they find you? I would say, well, first, I am always on LinkedIn. So definitely send me a connection request, Sherry Bellitz, S-H-A-R-I-B-E-L-I-T-Z. But you can also go to my website, www.sherrybellitz.com and join my mailing list. And I try to put up new content weekly about different ways to apply social psychology to litigation. So I'm always kind of refreshing that and putting up new and exciting things. So definitely reach out to me there as well. No, I've, I've checked out the website. It's worth looking into. So I encourage everybody to do so. And, and th- you know, this, this is a lot of fun because it's where we are in the modern world, but I, I haven't had the pleasure of actually meeting Sherry in, in person. She and I became connected on LinkedIn and listened to one of the podcasts and uh, had some nice things to say. I appreciated that. And 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 look, you say nice things about the podcast, and poof, you're a guest. I mean, it, it works. You're a guest. It, yeah, that's your cognitive. <laughs> that's your cognitive bias. That's your affinity bias. I like what you have to say, so you like me, and 
you have me on the podcast. So there's one more bias for well, the day. Well, hopefully we have some biased listeners who at least, you know, learn something or if not, we're a little bit entertained. So all you guys out there, if you can come up with why I haven't walked out of movies, but put down books and, you know, I, I think that I'm, I'm now, that's what I'm going to be thinking about once we go off offline, why it is that I do that. So, but, uh, you know, it's funny how you could point out something like that, that's just in the subconscious and the person needs to be, you know, self-aware. And, and, and like I said before, with mediation, I, I, I do want to go back. We, we talked about all these biases. I realize as somebody who, you know, is similar to you in that we, we decided to follow our passion and are farther along, but at some point there was a fork in the road and we changed up what our career paths are. And so for me, going from litigation to mediation, you know, we'd all like to be as busy as possible. And I need to realize that I have to be self-aware and my job as a mediator, you know, I'm not the star of the show. So it's not about me trying to prove I know all this stuff about whether it's the law, whether it's about litigating or whether it's about psychology and cognitive biases. You know, my job there is to listen, hopefully create an environment so that people are open to thinking outside the box, being flexible, and, and asking the questions that make people slow down. And if they're going to walk away from the settlement table, it's only because they've thoroughly considered their litigation risks, they've considered some of the strengths and weaknesses of their cases, and they've made that decision. If they've done that, then to me, you know, it would be an outcome bias for me to be too concerned about what my percentage settlement rate is. I think when you do that, most cases will settle. But, you know, it's not about you. It's, it's, it's about the parties. And so I just, I know I always have to work on this, but I want to assure people that at, at least I'm self-aware to realize that despite being fascinated by all these things, you know, once we get into a mediation setting, my job isn't to tell people what to do. So I think that's a really, that's a really great takeaway. That's a good way for a lot of us to think about what we do is to just sort of focus on doing and not focus so much on the outcome because the outcome may not have anything to do really with what we're doing. There's so many variables. So I, so I like that as a takeaway. I think that's really powerful. Well, right. And let's face it, we can all feel succumb to, you know, when it settles, it of course was that I did a great job, but if it didn't, it was their <laughs> fault. No. <laughs> right. No. All right. Well, Sherry, I'll give you the, the last word. Uh, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to both plan this and to participate here today. I wish you the best of luck uh, in New York and in your field. And I hope at some point when uh, the world changes a little bit, our paths can uh, cross in the actual world as opposed to the virtual world. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I hope we gave everyone some really interesting things to think about. If you have any questions for Steve or me, you're certainly welcome to give me a call. I'm sure Steve has an open door policy as well. And I would just like to end by saying, wear a mask. Absolutely. Uh, I'll second that. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, so for uh, today... We're closing the door, but as Sherry said, we'll leave it open a crack. And until next time, have a great day. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.